Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Medha Prasanna on the World Affairs Channel. Today, we are very fortunate to be speaking with the author of a terrific new book on the efficient allocation of foreign aid. The book's title is International Aid and Democracy Promotion, and it's written by IR and Poli Sci Assistant Professor at Ashoka University, Professor Bansing Tan. Previously, he has taught at the College of William and Mary, Boisichi University, and at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This is where he also received his PhD. Ban Singh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us, and congratulations on getting your new book published. We're excited to speak about it. Meta, it's a pleasure to be here. I am excited and happy to be on the new books network. Just as a place to start, can you give us an introduction to your background and how you came to write this particular book? Sure. I'm going to talk about some of the uh, I'm going to talk about the professional interests, the international context and perhaps also some of the personal level reflections. Mm-hmm. You may be aware my dissertation research is on the democratic peace. The if democracies do not fight wars against each other, then democratization becomes a way to promote peace as a moral imperative. I started to focus more on democratization as a research topic. I was also fortunate because I had a visiting stint at the College of William and Mary. Inside the college, there is a research institute called Aid Data. Back then, it was a very young but a rising star in foreign aid research. So I started to pay more attention to the politics of foreign aid. And I started to apply it to international democracy promotion. So in a way, you can think of it as I'm approaching democratization initially as a moral imperative. But when I study and the book, I treat it as a policy imperative. In other words, I'm asking if we are going to do this, how can we do this effectively? And doing this, analyzing it this way, is a social science question using normal standard social scientific method. I have just addressed the professional imperative. Let me just talk a little bit about the international context. I guess I'm reacting to the era that we live in, right? This is the era that is characterized as one of feckless democracies and resurgent authoritarianism. Together, is a toxic combination for democracy promotion. I wanted to see if it is possible, given the current constraint, that is political constraints, whether democracy promotion with foreign aid is still possible. And if so, how to go about it in an efficient manner. Now, there is a more, there is a more personal approach behind all this. You may be aware, given that we are both based in Asia, that out of the authoritarian regimes in Asia, there is a sense, a cheerfulness, a gleefulness about the end of the liberal international order. Well, not everybody is happy to see the end of the liberal order. I want to see whether it's possible to push back in the opposite direction. So, Professor... I guess, in a way, you're an optimist, and I think the young scholars in the audience would be really interested in hearing about that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the framework and the main distinction between aid recipients? 
Yes, I can. This will be pretty long, so I should warn my audience about this. Um, so <laughs> what I want to do in this book is to understand how eight donors, the one with the money, choose among eight recipients, the ones who need the money, whom to apply pressure to. And the reason why I'm interested in the dynamics of state-to-state -state bargaining in the domain of foreign aid is because I want to use that information to promote democracy. So the research question is meant to help me address a normative concern, promotion of democracy. I argue in the book, foreign aid can still be effective to promote democracy if we choose our recipients carefully. We should be selective. It should go to the group of countries that lack the strategic and commercial attributes for reasons that I will go into shortly that render them more susceptible to donor pressure. This is the group that's more likely to liberalize. Of course, the next issue is, the, my audience will be asking, why should they care? Why is this important? Well, you see, I solve a problem that aid donors have. Since foreign aid is a bonus income for the regime, strategic recipients may have an incentive to lie about their intention to democratize. So from the donor's point of view, it would be really useful if a priori, they can separate between the recipients who are sincere. They say they want to liberalize. After getting the money, they actually liberalize. To separate it from the recipients who are engaged in cheap talk. They say they want to liberalize, but they don't really mean it. What they are really after is the aid money. Furthermore, this filter is empirical, it's quantitative. This is useful because not just in foreign aid, you can apply this to different types of bargaining scenarios between states. There is also a practical implication to my research. Keep in mind the domestic politics within liberal democracies. Among other things, we are living in the age of austerity. The general public is not tolerant to spend lots of money on foreign aid. So aid agencies, for example, uh, United States Agency for International Development, USAID in other words, are always under constant pressure to justify their budget. My research helped them identify cases of policy success. This is important because it helps them in their domestic budget debates. So now I'm going to go into the theory. I'm going to start by considering the donor's point of view. The general public assumes that foreign aid is motivated by humanitarian concern. We know from the empirical studies of foreign aid, especially those derived from the selectorate theory, that this is not true. Donors have a variety of objectives they seek to pursue with foreign aid. They can seek geostrategic concession. Let me give you an example. Think of American aid to, act, um, to the ex-Egyptian president Hussein Mubarak. By giving aid to Hussein Mubarak and to Egypt, United States is buying Egypt's compliance with the Camp David peace accord. Donors can also seek economic concessions. When you think, um, it may help to think of Chinese aid to selected African countries that happen to be rich in the mineral and oil resources that the Chinese economy desperately need. 
for the listeners, they may just want to do a Google, Google search and search for the Angolan model that describe and characterize this type of pattern of aid giving. Now, donors can also seek democratization. Now, my assumption, and this is one that's supported by the empirical literature, is that democratization is a lesser priority. It is below the economic and security interests that the donors are far more interested in. Professor, if you don't mind me interrupting you here, mm-hmm. can you clarify for our audience what the distinction is between democratization and liberalization? Yes, it is an important distinction. Democratization refers to fundamental political reforms that increase the accountability of the elites, the, the rulers of the country, to their own people. In political science, sometimes they use the term democratic consolidation. That means things that actually fundamentally turn the regime into a democracy. Liberalizations also refers to political reform, but they are of a more superficial nature. So this could include things like holding of multi-party elections. That means the regime allows opposition to participate into politics. Whereas previously in a a purely authoritarian setting, the regime may not even allow the opposition to participate in the election. So it's of a more superficial nature. That said, liberalization is still important because you can see as a first step towards increasing the accountability of the elites to their own people. So um, if I may, what I'm going to do now is that I'm going to complete my theoretical argument. I have just discussed the donors. Now I'm going to turn to the recipient. Now, why should we look at the recipients? Well, because in my book, I take the recipients seriously. I treat them as strategic actors with their own priorities. So look at it from the recipient point of view. If I am a dictator, if I am in charge of an authoritarian country, I do not like the democratization and the political reforms that the donors want. It's very politically costly for me. Autocrats do not want to give up power if they can help it. So the question becomes, what can they do if they want the money, but they don't like the conditionality that is attached with the aid? Now, they have several options. The one that I investigate in the book is the idea of a grand bargain that the autocrat can make a counter offer to the donors offering to give up something else, some other policy concession instead of democratization. What the audience should be aware is that this is a bargaining scenario. The recipient with the strategic and commercial attributes that donor wants should have a much easier time getting the aid compared to the recipients who lack such value. This is abstract. Let me give you two examples uh, as a a pair of motivating examples. Back in the year 2013, there was a military coup in Egypt when General al-Sisi overthrew the elected government of President Morsi. Immediately after the coup, the United States came under pressure to cut off aid to Egypt in response. Now, why is that? My audience may be aware that Congress, United States Congress, of course, 
pass a law requiring the automatic suspension of aid to any recipients that suffer from a military coup. Despite this law, the administration of the time, President Obama's administration, refused to cut off aid to Egypt. In fact, the White House, in one of the more remarkable press conferences, refused to identify what happened in Egypt as a military coup. Why? Because calling something a military coup has legal ramification. The moment you call it a coup, then you have to follow up with the steps to cut off it, which is exactly what the United States didn't want. That's why they refused to even call it a military coup. Now you compare the contrast in that reaction with a similar setback in democracy. In this case, a military coup in 2006 in Fiji, in the South Pacific. Now, there, the United States was decisive in its reaction. It had no problem cutting off foreign aid, putting sanctions on Fiji, and insisting on the democratization of the Fijian uh, polity before the United States would even consider resuming foreign aid. In other words, right, the US is responding very differently in one case in compared to the other case. So what will explain the disparity in the response by the aid donors? My argument is that Egypt is an important ally of the United States. To put it bluntly, it is too important for the United States to risk democratization on. By contrast, the United States have no particular need for Fiji. There, the US can afford to indulge in a call for democratization. What does this mean? It means that my theory is explaining how the Western donors react differently between two conceptual groups of recipients. One group, you may help, it may help to, for my audience to think of this as the Egypts of the aid recipient world. They have bargaining power, they can resist. So in this book, uh, in the book, I'm going to call them the primary recipients. The other group, it may help to think of this as the Fijis of the aid recipient world. They have very little bargaining power. They are going to find it harder to resist. So this group is the secondary recipient. I hope to have persuaded my audience that we shouldn't consider all recipients equally. Some are more important than others. Now, this is a very useful insight. You can use this for democracy promotion. We should filter the recipients by their leverage. The autocrats of the primary recipient, they know they are valuable. That is, they have leverage back against the Western donors. When you put donor pressure on the primary recipient, my argument is that they are more likely to fail. But that doesn't mean the same pressure cannot work on secondary recipient. Why? Because the secondary recipients have little else to offer that is attractive to the donors. The autocrats of such states have less leverage, which means that this is the group that is more likely to succeed with the application of democracy aid. So the take-home lesson is that we should recalibrate our aid allocation strategy to emphasize the secondary recipient if our goal is actually democracy promotion. That's why 
The subtitle of the book is called Liberalization at the Margin. It encapsulates the gist of my argument. Bouncing, that's an absolutely fascinating hypothesis and approach. I'd like to move on to one of the premises of your research question. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Hmm? but you describe this loss of democratic momentum after 2006 and consequently a loss in credibility of democratic aid. Mm-hmm. What do you think accounts for this? And could you elaborate on how it has tested political priorities? Sure. In the first chapter of the book, I did a quick overview of this idea of democracy aid. Um, my audience may know that foreign aid has many different categories, right? So you can give aid for economic development. You can give aid for environmental protection. So when I use the term democracy aid, I mean the aid, that is usually attached or linked to governance-related reforms. For example, giving the aid conditional on the regime, the the, the aid recipient holding multi-party elections or the training of election observers, that kind of aid, right? Which we call democracy aid. So the short version is that there was a period where democracy aid had some amount of political momentum this was a very short period in the 1990s, immediately after the end of the Cold War, where Western liberal democracies started to pay more attention or emphasize democracy aid. That momentum by now has more or less petered out or that momentum is very much in trouble. The book, the first chapter, I analyzed and I explained what, what was going on. The short version is that democracies are less committed to democracy promotion now and autocracies precisely because they see or they acquire a perception of economic success, they are now more forceful, they are more resurgent, they are more willing to push back against democracy promotion. So the two of them, the the combination, right, which I characterize as feckless democracy and resurgent authoritarianism, it makes it really difficult to promote um, democracy in the current international context. Like you said, you talk about the idea of democracy itself being under challenge because of the era and loss of democratic momentum. And I think we can all agree on this. But do you really believe that we are at a point where the liberal order is ending and about to be replaced by an authoritarian one? So this, as you know, is a very big question. Um I'm going to speculate. I think right now the liberal world order is not ending, but is at one of its nadir. So nadir means one of the low points of liberal democracy. This makes authoritarian regime, which historically do not have a good track record of policy competence, the weaknesses of liberal democracy has a side effect of making authoritarian regime look good by comparison. Here's a simple example, right? And since we live in the era of COVID-19, right? I'm going to use a COVID-19 example. It's not as if China is extremely successful in combating COVID-19. It's the fact that America didn't do a good job. By contrast, it makes the Chinese authorities look good. So there's this comparative element that is um, quite salient in our international politics here. So let me speculate. And here, in a sense, my guess is as good as my audience. 
I think maybe we are in a comparable period to the 1930s. In the 1930s, liberal democracy was seen as in one of its nadir, one of the low points, and is besieged on the right by the fascist regime and besieged on the left by the communist regime. So it's one of those periods of ideological contestation. So that's a bad news. The good news is the survivor, the, the ability of liberal democracy to endure have been underestimated before. If we go back to the 1930s, most people, most thinkers of that time expected liberal democracy and the liberal world order to end. Turn out, after the end of the Cold War, it is liberal democracy that survived, right? That is to say, um, in the long run, the ability of liberal democracy to survive may be far stronger than what its critics have posited. I forgot, there was an American thinker who once said, right, uh, in, in the long run or in the big picture, it's generally a really bad idea to bet against the United States, right? The ability of the United States to revive itself is far higher than what most other current authoritarian critics assume. I absolutely agree with you there, Ban Singh. And it's interesting that you spoke about state rhetoric earlier mm-hmm. while referring to the coronavirus case. Mm-hmm. And what I think you importantly achieve with this book is lifting that veil of state rhetoric. As we enter the age of disinformation, in a way by examining the data, you're giving agency back to your readers and letting the data speak for itself. The book also tries to, and I'd like to say is largely successful in capturing both the end studies quantitative conclusions as well as the nuances of the case studies. Can you tell us a little bit about how you settled on this hybrid research method? Sure. The bulk of the book, that means the um, at least three chapters of the book, I devoted it to quantitative studies linking foreign aid data, which is derived from aid data, the the data set which is associated with aid data, the organization, and regime characteristics, which is measures of um, democracies and autocracies from the polity for data set. So the bulk of the method is actually quantitative. But for the purpose of reaching out to my audience, and also when I'm explaining the theory, I found it very useful to have motivating examples or a pair of simple examples to contrast, to illustrate the key phenomena. So during this particular talk, I gave the examples of Fiji and Egypt. So Fiji is an example or a a representation of a secondary recipient and Egypt is a representation or example of a primary recipient. Therefore, in the book, I also use case studies to illustrate how the aid dynamic, the bargaining can be a failure in one case and very successful in another case. So the case studies are very useful for illustrating the theoretical mechanism, the causal mechanism that the theory highlights. Here's another way to think about it. Um, In a lot of political science research, usually... uh, well, I shouldn't use the word usually because it depends on which school um, the scholar is affiliated in. The, the scholarship that I speak to, the scholarship that I consider my target audience, typically use both 
quantitative and qualitative uh, quantitative and qualitative methods. Bansing, mm-hmm. um, I. I'd be um, remiss not to ask you from a historical histor- historian skeptic point of view, um, your use of large end studies in the context of having few cases with a truly large number of moving parts in the international system, mm-hmm. how would you defend the usage of that methodology? And for the quantitative um, divide in the audience, without getting too much into the math, what makes the, that section robust? Sure. The, um, I'm going to answer the second question first, which the, the, the issue mm-hmm. of the robustness, right? because that's an easier question. I run a multitude of auxiliary checks for robustness. The details are in the chapter. I'm going to highlight two of them that might be uh, useful or easy for the, my audience to understand. One of the checks I run to control is a control for the Cold War because one argument is that the use of foreign aid to promote democracy may be subject or conditioned by the international environment. During the Cold War, aid recipients can play donors against each other. When the West put pressure on a given, say, a, a, a given African country to liberalize because it's the Cold War, that particular aid recipient knows that it can turn to the Soviet Union to as a patron, as an alternative option, as an exit option in game theory, right? So the Cold War is an important context. So this is one of the controls I implement into my, my um, regression analysis. The other thing I do is to address the reverse causality argument. So just to recap, the argument, the theory is foreign aid induced political liberalization in the aid recipients. The reverse argument, that means the reverse causal argument, is that the aid donors do not know which countries are suitable targets. So they purposely choose the countries that are already liberalizing anyway. That means instead of trying to persuade them to liberalize, they pick the successful cases, give money to them, and retrospectively claim that their money is the reason why they are successful. That means they pick the easy cases. So in my um, statistical analysis, I include a, cause, um, a control for this. That means I focus on the cases that were not already liberalizing at the moment of aid receipt. That will rule out the fact or the prospect of donors purposely choosing the cases that were liberalizing anyway. So these are two uh, ways to think about robustness. Now, as for the defense of um, the defense of statistics and so on, all, all I can say is that there are different types of audience, right? So um, um, there are different groups of scholars. Some scholars are approaching this from perhaps the historical point of view, which I'm sympathetic and I understand. But some scholars are approaching this from the political science of uh, political science point of view. And that way of thinking is um, nomological. That means it's a large-end statistical to see patterns over many cases. And that is the approach that I'm more normatively inclined towards. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very fair answer, Ban Singh. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I was particularly intrigued by your uh, comparison between the Egypt and Fiji coups. They're very similar events that receive very different reactions on the international stage. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the cases a little more for our audience and how your conclusion accounts for the international mood or environment, as you say? Mm-hmm. Sure. Both Egypt and Fiji are um, big cases in my book, right? So that there's one chapter where and I directly compare between the two of them. So for the purpose of um, talking about them, I'm going to talk about Egypt first, then I will move on to Fiji. So in the case of Egypt, there's um, there was a very nice book by Brown Lee uh, where he talks about how United States have given Egypt under Hussein Mubarak. Now this was a dictator that was overthrown in 2013. Um, around 1.2 I'm sorry I'm sorry 1.5 billion dollars in aid every year for over 30 years now let me be clear 1.5 billion every year over 30 years according to brownlee that translates into almost 60 billion dollars worth of aid coming from the united states it's a very large amount of money for that amount of money the us do have leverage and that means the, the money is substantial and it, has, it, it gives the United States as a donor important leverage over Egypt. In the book, I talk about two cases where the U.S. attempt to put leverage on Egypt using foreign aid. The first attempt is immediately after 9 September 11, where President George W. Bush pushed for democratization in the Middle East using foreign aid initiative such as the Middle East Partnership Initiative, known by the acronym MIPI. Under pressure from the US, Mubarak helped a series of uh, parliamentary and presidential elections from 2005 to 2007. Mubarak manipulated the electoral system. He arranged it in such a way that the contest is not between Hussein Mubarak and the liberal alternative. He did it in such a way as to make sure that the alternative is between Hussein Mubarak and the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is anti-American, is hostile to the United States. So the U.S. is forced to choose between Hussein Mubarak and the Muslim Brotherhood. Once they are forced to make a choice, that means do I emphasize democracy and risk having a hostile regime come into power, the Americans decide to back down. That is to say, they are less committed to democracy promotion if it means that democracy promotion will create an entity that is hostile to American interests. Again, that means that security interest is more important to the Americans compared to democracy promotion. The second attempt by the Americans was during the 2006 Gaza war between Israel and Hamas. There, the United States wanted an international blockade of Hamas, which is based in the Gaza Strip, which is a border uh, very close, to, um, is in the, in the um, territory overlapping between Israel and Egypt. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, the um, Congress, in an unprecedented first time, tied the general aid to Egypt, conditional on Egyptian cooperation in closing the border between Egypt and Gaza. The Egyptians were unhappy 
but under pressure, General Tantawi, the, mini, the top military commander at the time, agreed to, cross the, uh, to close the border. So I want my audience to notice this. There are two uh, overt attempts to assert pressure. In one case, the United States was successful. In the other case, the U.S. is not successful. Why? Because the security of Israel is a top priority for the Americans. When it comes to their top priority, American donor pressure is effective. When it comes to democracy promotion, which is not a top priority, the Americans are willing to back down. They are willing to let the Egyptian win or uh, get what they want, which is in this case, the um, foreign aid without necessarily democratization. Let me now turn to Fiji, which is the other contrast, right? Now, Fiji is an interesting case because it's a Pacific island. It has very little strategic interest to the Americans. In fact, when it comes to Fiji, it's... Um, U.S. is actually a minor aid donor. In that region, Australia and New Zealand are the more important aid donors. They asserted their leverage on Fiji. In response, the Fijian leadership, this is the military junta, uh, adopted a look-north policy. They sought aid from China, north as in go to China, right? The, the key thing you want to note is that the same lack of leverage that allows the West to put pressure on Fiji also operates with regards to the Chinese. The Chinese didn't really have that much they can derive from the patronage of Fiji. So after several innovative reactions by the Fijian authorities, for example, they created their own international organization, Fiji, the Fijian government was persuaded to hold multi-party elections and after the holding of multi-party elections, Western aid donors resume aid to Fiji. So this is a case where, despite the best effort of the aid recipient, when they don't have that much to offer, they are not as successful compared to Egypt, which have a lot to offer that is attractive to the West. Now, um, I'm just describing this audioly. The book, the chapters itself, of course, I go into greater detail about the domestic politics and the international politics of South Pacific and the international politics of the Middle East. It's an absolutely persuasive comparison, Ban Singh. Mm-hmm. Coming to Myanmar, I think an incredibly interesting and timely case, it, it represents a unique set of factors as I've understood it that situates it between primary and secondary recipient. It sets the limit to donor switching. But what I think is also interesting is that it outlines the limit to political concessions. And as we've seen with the November elections, the limit is that the military junta ultimately retains an autonomous status, unlike any other true democracy. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, okay, can you tell our audience a little bit more about this phenomenon of donor switching? Sure. So let's separate donor switching from Myanmar first, even though I do apply it to Myanmar in the case study. So the idea of donor switching is very simple. If I'm under pressure from one camp, I can switch between and um, switch to another camp of donors to look for somebody else who can give me the money. So in the case of the Cold War, if the Western camp, the US, 
put pressure on me as an aid recipient, I have an alternative. I can switch from the US to the Soviet camp. Now, there are interesting implications for donor switching. When the recipient turns to the alternative donor, at some point, the alternative donor may realize that they have so much leverage over the recipient precisely because the recipient is ostracized from the first set of donors, they may choose to exercise their leverage by increasing the demands upon the recipient. And that increase in demand may be so high, so painful, that it may induce the recipient to turn back to the first set of donors in the first place, if only because they want to restore their independence or the room for maneuver between the two of them. So all this is abstract, right? Now, may I give you, um, if, with, your, with, your, with the understanding of my audience, I'm going to just illustrate for, with another example, which is not from foreign aid. It's from oil sanctions. Iran, for a very long period, was under oil sanctions from the West. That means the Iranian oil cannot be sold directly to the West. So what does Iran do? They turn to China, they turn to India as an alternative buyer of the oil. Now, the Iranian authorities would love to sell the oil at the price it can get in the Western market, which is a very high price. The Indian authorities and the Chinese authorities refuse to buy it at the Western price. Their argument is very simple. Why should we pay such a high price? It's not as if you can sell it to the West. So the fact that the Iranian authorities could not sell it at the, to the West have now depressed the price at which they have to sell the oil to the Indians and to the Chinese. That means what? The Chinese and the Indians are using their leverage over Iran to drive down the price of the oil. Surely that is painful to the Iranian authorities. At some point, they may realize that the, their, the fact that they are under sanctions from the West is depressing the price at which they have to sell the oil. So in order to restore, to get the maximum price for their good, in this case oil, the correct and the strategic choice is to turn around and try to make peace with the West. Because by restoring market access to the West, that would have the effect directly of increasing the price at which they can sell the oil to the Chinese and to the Indians. So it's this idea that donor switching can cut both ways. It may hurt the recipients as well. I hope that is you know, clear enough to my readers and to the audience. Absolutely, Ban Singh. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, we, looking to the long term, mm-hmm. um, I think I had, I had a question about democracies, new democracies especially, undergoing this honeymoon phase that is more often than not followed by a return to some form of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Keeping this in mind in the long run, even for uh, our so-called secondary recipients, do you think it's realistic to expect that foreign aid will get them over this honeymoon phase and continue on the path of democratization? Ah, So now you are asking a question that is related to the distinction between superficial political reforms and democratic consolidation. So you're right. Some of these countries that you can use foreign aid 
to promote, say, the holding of multi-party elections. Some of these countries will backslide, will turn back to authoritarianism. I guess this is something that um, that cannot be helped, right? And it's a recognition of the fact that democratic transition, democratization, the process of democratization is a long and it's a very hard process and it's full of setback. There's a very nice expression from American politics. Um, let, give me a moment. Let me think about the expression so that I get it correct. The, the phrase was that... Um, the price of democracy is in eternal vigilance, right? That the idea that if you want to keep your democracy, you have to work at it. It's not as if it's a stable state. It's something that requires political will. It's something that requires effort. This is true in the US. I think it's true in any parts of the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a very interesting view, Bansing. Mm-hmm. We're nearing the end. So I thought I'd like to ask you a bigger question. One that the very beginning of the book grapples with. In chapter one, the book asks, all five trends work against democracy promotion. The question is, what can we do about it? Who is this we? Who is this last bearing torchbearer of democracy? I know this is a rather hopeless question, but given the global political environment that has been trying to reverse globalization, despite the detriment to itself, who is this book addressed to? And who is this pursuit feasible for? Okay. Uh, I recognize that there will be those who are happy to see the end of the liberal world order. Surely, there will be some, perhaps the electorate, perhaps politicians, and hopefully policymakers, who are still invested in the defense of the liberal world order to the extent that people think that liberal democracy is something worth fighting for, worth pursuing. That group of people is my target audience because some of them wants to protect or help the liberal democracy survive, but they may not have an idea how to go about it. My book is a niche look at how to promote liberal democracy using a particular foreign policy tool, in this case, foreign aid. Now, as to the who is this pursuit suitable for, it's not the policymakers. Ultimately, right, it has to do with the people living in a liberal democracy. In the last chapter of the book, I pointed out the reason why liberal democracies do not privilege the democracy promotion over every other um, alternative policy concession is because ultimately that's what the electorate wants. The electorate, that is to say the people, right, the ordinary people of liberal democracy simply do not privilege the liberties of others. That means they, they themselves do not think that democracy promotion is a high priority. priority. If by giving it a high priority, it means sacrificing other strategic and economic concessions they can derive from the rest of the world. In the very last section of the book, I pointed out, if the people in the West consistently make this choice to downplay democracy promotion, then they really should not be surprised 
when the world turns more and more authoritarian. They have made a choice and that choice has consequences. In so far as I am appealing to their group of their better angels, hopefully some of the policymakers in the West may be more strategic. They may be more aware of the long-run implications of a world that's turning authoritarian. And they may decide it is in their own strategic interest to try to defend or at least delay the end of the liberal world order. Because um, uh, as difficult as it is for demo- liberal democracies now, it's going to be much harder to survive as a liberal democracy in a world that is predominantly authoritarian. So in a sense, I, although I, don't, I, I do not emphasize this too much, in a sense, near the end of the book, there is a, there is a warning of the consequences of ignoring lib, uh, the promotion of liberal democracy. Bansing, this has been extremely informative and I guess I'd like to say thank you for giving some of us hope. <laughs> in terms of your next project, mm-hmm. would you be readdressing some other questions in the context of democracy and foreign aid? What papers and books can we look forward to? Ah, okay. Um, I'll be glad to answer that. Um, I, I am an assistant professor, that is to say I work in academia. Right now, my primary goal is to move slightly away from this topic and to go back to my original dissertation topic, which is on the democratic peace and enduring rivalry. It's still related to democratization because the research deals with the question, what happens when you have uh, democratization of a pair of states that is engaged in fighting? Does democratization increase or decrease the subsequent odds of further conflict. So does democratization make things worse, right? So this is a, a research question about the international consequences of democratization. So that is the next book project that I'm trying to get, um, I'm trying to focus on. Um, it's probably going to take some time, right? Because book, writing on books takes quite a bit of time. Right? Yeah. Bansing, that sounds like a great project. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And if take I may care. interrupt you for a slight moment. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So um, I would like my audience to know the book is available on open access. Ashoka University, my university, generously funded the book. So that means they make it free for everybody. When you go to the book web page, somewhere down there in one of the links, that it's easy to download the book and it's available for free. Right. Hmm? Yes, we'll make this link accessible to our listeners. Hmm? Thank you so much, Ban Singh. It was lovely having you on the show. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Meta.